This is the Northamptonshire Carers Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Northamptonshire Carers Podcast. This is the August 2023 edition, episode 7. And this month, something different in that the whole podcast is a conversation with Bernie Keith of BBC Radio Northampton and Rock and Roll Heaven on Saturday evenings across uh, not just BBC Radio Northampton, but a whole range of BBC local radio stations. It's great to be joined by Bernie Keith. So welcome, Bernie, to the Northampton Shakespeare. Thanks, Adam. It's a real pleasure to be here in the palatial studio in which I'm recording. It's like a cupboard. I'm in a broom cupboard. (laughs) I spent years in the closet and now you're putting me back in one. We we, we try our best with the surroundings here. We are a charity. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to start with just really asking a fairly straightforward question. When did you first develop that interest in, in radio? When I was three and a half. My dad used to work for Rank Bush Murphy, uh, Bush TVs, some people may know, and the Rank organization. He used to tell me that he was the man with the gong, you know, the oiled, muscled yeah. guy who'd beat the gong at the beginning of films. And then I saw him, and I believed it. And then I saw him coming out of the bathroom one day when I was on the landing in his vest and his pajama bottoms. And I thought, I don't know, he don't look much like the man with the gong to me. But he would bring back prototype sets, transistors they were then, and radiograms and dance sets and things. And my sister had this radio, and I wanted it. For some reason, it captivated me. And uh, I wanted one, and he couldn't bring me back another set, so he brought me back an empty set with nothing in it. And I couldn't work out why I couldn't get any sound. And my aunt was telling me to put coins in the slot where the volume control should be. So I was putting all my old pennies in here. And of course, nothing was coming out because there was nothing in it. So I kicked up a stink. And my mum said to my sister, I'll let your brother have it. And with those what five words, that was my life set in stone. Everywhere that I went, the radio came with me. I viewed it as a box of magic. And I still do, really. This was in the 60s. I was born in 63, so we were living in West London, so we heard all the pirate stations, and I was addicted to them. It wasn't just the music, because I could have put a record on. It wasn't the speech, because I could have listened to the light programme. It was something about the guys, and there were guys in those days, solely men, having fun over the records. And so by the age of five, I was doing my own radio programmes on the landing, and then my dad built me a little mock-up studio in my bedroom and then when I was 16 I joined hospital radio and that was it just just going back to uh the 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 pirate stations really that was there something else about the fact that you kind of never heard that that sort of radio in in the UK well I didn't know you see it started in 64 and I was born in 63 so I hadn't heard what came before now you look back and there is this kind of magic that you couldn't get that anywhere else. The BBC have always been slow to the rock and roll party, so they weren't playing rock and roll music. you know. And then in 63, when Beatlemania broke, they had to play some, but the fact that they had to was because the pirates had forced their hand. So all I've ever known is the pirate delivery, you know, that kind of American big boss sound yeah. style, you know? I think it was Alan Freeman, actually, that, uh, that, that, that was talking about when he first heard the BBC when he came to the UK and I think heard a BBC announcer saying something like that was Frank Sinatra on a gramophone record. (laughs) It was so staid. When Radio 1 launched in 1967, 
Emperor Roscoe was the second voice on, and Emperor Roscoe was doing all this, Mercy, Mr. Percy, great casaboo stuff, you know. And John Donne, who went on to become this very urbane, very clipped, typical BBC presenter of Drive Time on Radio 2, he was reading the news. And he came off the back of Roscoe's show, and he said, and now here's the news in English. And it must have been such a culture shock to them. But I loved it. I was a wee kid, you know, and hearing people like Everett and Blackburn and Stuart Henry and Roscoe and Fluff Freeman, they were so punchy and exciting, you know. And still, that's what I like to do. You know, I don't really listen to phone-ins and things. I kind of like music presentation. And now it's harder to find people who do comedy. You know, Steve Wright was kind of the last one who did the personality stuff. And they got rid of him, well, they sidelined him last year. So it's difficult to find people. They're still there if you seek them out, but it's harder to find them. And you, you mentioned some names there, but are there any particular presenters that, that as, as you sort of started to listen more to the radio that you kind of thought, yeah, that's, that's, that's somebody I, I really like and that might have been in, inspirational? Well, all of those, really. But then when I hit my teenage years, from 11, we moved to a new estate in Devon where I didn't know anybody. I'd had friends the same age on the same street in North Holt. And then when we moved to Devon, I didn't know anybody. There was no one there. So I found friends in the radio. And it was Noel Edmonds. He did the Radio 1 Breakfast Show. And it was the biggest show in Britain. 21 million people listened to that breakfast show, which is unbelievable. And Wogan was on the other side on Radio 2. And he had something like 18 million. So combined, they had 37 million people, which was astonishing. And I was obsessed with Noel. I still think he's the best live entertainment TV broadcaster we've ever had. When I listen back, you can go on Mixcloud now. If you type in the name of your favourite presenter on Mixcloud, up will come a whole load of programmes. And we'll listen to them now with 45 years distance. They don't sound great. But then I thought it was everything that I wanted. And his kind of fluency, he was terribly coherent and well-spoken Noel. He never stumbled, he never tripped. And I thought that was amazing, really. Did you, did you like his Sunday morning show? I loved his yeah. Sunday morning show. I was a student by then. Um, and it was so great because that was the theatre of the mind. And only Everett had done that. You know, you believed that he broadcast from this place called Dingley Dell. You believed that uh, John Snag was making the announcements. You believed that Geoffrey Howe was there reading kids' stories. It was amazing, really. Yeah. And uh, I, th I think there's something unique about being able to do that with radio, which, which well, I mean... Some people would say TV is the thing, but but I, th I think I'm mean, with you. Radio is, it, you can just sort of conjure up all these images. And you never you? get the intimacy with TV. I've never done TV, but I'm standing outside Dixon's shop window in the 80s. So I don't know but um, firsthand, but I know from other people that there's never the connection because you're talking to one person, you know. In my case, it often is just the one person. But whenever I hear people on the radio, and they do it all the time now on the national stations, most presenters do it now when they say hello everyone yeah. you know there's not everyone thanks i'm on my own listening to you and that's who you broadcast to and whenever people say when you start out they say imagine so and so in your head that you're talking to well no because you're not that person so you just imagine yourself you're talking to yourself you know when i got my first professional job it was in warwickshire and they said i had to imagine a middle-aged housewife in nuneaton well, I wasn't a housewife. I wasn't middle-aged then. I didn't know Nuneaton, so I couldn't. So it was a stupid thing to say to someone. So just imagine you're talking to yourself, to one person. 
Often it helps if you start now to put a cutout, a face on the window opposite you, so you're talking to them. Or you've got cue cards down there, fighting cards. Put something up on the desk so you look at them, and that's how you do it. You know, if people like me, if they've even heard of me, people will often say it's because you're just talking to one person, and that's what I learned from the people I listen to. You know, and the people coming in now, they don't listen to the radio. You know, they want to be podcasters, YouTubers. Kids TV was the thing ten years back. You know, but they don't bother listening to other people to find out how to do it. Well, I learned everything about the positioning of the microphone from Noel Evans, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I think that the, the other thing is that that's you kind of find that it seems, and it seems to be increasingly so, that people who have no real background in radio but have got a TV profile or some such tend to end up doing radio programmes. Seems to be now on the network shows, but that's how it's been for a long old time, you know, and... You can't really argue with the listening figures. It's a celebrity age, you know. That's why people come off of Love Island or Big Brother and no one knew who they were. They just had normal jobs. And then they're on there and people think they're worth paying money to go and see it at a club, you know, or to put in panto. And people love it because they're famous. Well, in a few weeks' time, you'll watch Strictly and when they announce the names, they'll drip feed them. You won't know who half of them are. And that doesn't matter come the end because you'll have invested time in them. But people buy into celebrity, you know. And the bosses who are on radio stations now were born in that celebrity age. So they're as infatuated by the notion of having a celebrity work for them as a fan would be. But you can't fight it, so, you know, I don't bother. Sure, it's the way it is, isn't it? So how did you get that break on Mercia Sound then? Well, I've never had a break, really. Everyone talks about what was your big break. I'm still waiting for my big break, really. I, I left university and I wanted to go back to Devon and so I sent four cassette tapes there were then to the stations around Commercial and BBC that there were in Devon and into Cornwall and they were all ignored. So then I thought, well, I need a job. What shall I do? And I became an accountant. And I don't know, Adam, if you've ever done anything in your life when you look back and you think, what was I thinking? Because I'm the least accountant-like person, you know? So I quit after six months before I was pushed. I jumped. And then I sent off 60 demo tapes to stations around the UK, including BBC Radio Northampton. I got a very snippy, nasty reply from the guy in charge of Radio Northampton at the time. So I waited a month and then I sent them all back with another 20. And one of that 20 was Mercia Sound. It's a war of attrition. It's true of anything in life. You've got to wear them down before they wear you down. And you have to keep going. And I just found that station that had someone leave they needed to fill it and so I went for the job what was Stuart Linnell involved he gave me my first job Stuart yeah, he obviously worked on BBC Radio Northampton well I got him that, go that job because uh, uh, he wasn't working and we hadn't spoken for years just because life took us in different directions you know and uh, I was speaking to him and he said what are you doing he said things are quite hard and so because he gave me my first break yeah. life is all about looking back and helping people, you know, which is the notion of carers, really. Although I wasn't Stuart's carer, although I used to say, one day I will. Um, and so because he gave me my first job when he needed it, I got him a job. Yeah. And he stayed there for, I think, about six or seven years. And then after Mercia, you went to work for, was it, was it a number of other... I went, I went all over, yeah, I was like a gypsy, really. I was in uh, South Wales, I was in Hampshire, and then I was at Century, Cemetery, FM in uh, Nottinghamshire, 
Leicestershire and Derbyshire. And then something happened and uh, I needed a change in my life. And uh, at that time, someone rang and said, um, I've just taken over at Radio Northampton, BBC station. Would you like to come and work for me? And I said, no, I wouldn't. Oh, and you don't turn down the BBC, apparently. Well, I didn't want to work for local radio. You know, it was radio for dead people. It was very dull, you know. And uh, then after about three weeks, he came back and he said, if we offer you X amount of money, and I said, I've always wanted to work for the BBC. So uh, I joined, and it was an experiment, really. And everyone said it wouldn't work. I was too outrageous, so I had to change and all the rest of it. You know, but I didn't. Was, was it a, a, a different feeling walk, walking into a BBC station versus a commercial station? What I suppose what I'm saying there really is, is just being conscious that, that, as you're saying, that, that they had a different approach, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was conscious in the summer. I would go in in shorts and uh, one of the staff made an official complaint because I was wearing shorts. But since the station editor who employed me walked around looking like Swampy, <laughs> the street protester, he was given pretty short shrift, you know. So there was that, and it's quite tight-assed, the BBC. It was, and it still is. People think they're better than they are because they've got the three letters. But because I came from a commercial radio, and also because of, uh, of my mum and dad and what we're going to talk about, I had a life outside of radio um, that involved being normal. So I've never got above myself, A, because I've not gone anywhere. You know, I've, I, my, my life has been one of stellar underachievement. Um, and B, because... You know, different from anyone else. It's a job, you know. But you see so many people get fame and then they go mad. I mean, I don't have fame. I have a degree of recognition, but I don't have fame. But they get it and they go nuts. Well, they go on these talent shows and, you know, they think, oh, singing is my life. And you think, well, you're 17, you know. You've had no life. I've got pants older than you. All I want to be is be famous. And then, of course, something happens in their life and you get reporters going through their bins or they're followed everywhere or they're caught on social media doing something inappropriate. And then they realize that fame is not all they, all that it's cracked up to be, you know? If you're a high achiever, it's great, you know? But the kind of fame that you see now with the reality shows, it doesn't last. And then people come unstuck because no one is turning up to their PAs anymore and they don't know what to do with their life, you know? So for me, it was just, you know, I do now what I did in my bedroom, that doesn't sound right, does it? I, I um, do the shows that I did in my bedroom. It's no different, you know, it's just I have some people listening, really, you know. I'm a different person because I've grown up, you know. I was then six and I'm now 60. But it's the same idea, you know. And I fought against all my career, um, this BBC idea that uh, they somehow think they're better than people, you know. You should listen to your audience. Not everyone does, but... I've met so many who do, you know, and that's not me. So that's that's kind of the difference, really. And you mentioned your mum and your mum and dad, and I know that don't don't sort of see that as having been a, a carer as, as such. No. But I just just uh, was aware that I think you said something in the past about working in radio kind of helped you to be able to spend spend more time with with your mum and dad. Well, I, I think if I'd achieved what I'd wanted to in my career, I wouldn't have been able to be with my mum when she needed me and to make her happy. My job was the court jester. You know, they lived in Plymouth and I was in Northamptonshire. Well, before then I was in Nottingham and I would drive home every Friday from Nottingham to Plymouth. I mean, from where I live now, it's a um, 500 mile round trip. 
and I used to do it every weekend for about 25 years. Um, and when friends would go down to Devon, they'd say, my God, how would you do that? And it didn't seem anything special to me because I knew on a Friday I would be in the car yeah. and on a Sunday I would be in the car. It's a bit like brushing my teeth, yeah. you know? It was part of my day. But when I do it now infrequently to go and see my sister, um, I do think, my God, how did I do that? You know, but you just do it. Yeah. And the whole notion of what people who are listening to this do is that they just do it. Yeah. They do it maybe out of love, out of care. Some will do it out of a, um, a sense of commitment. Some maybe will do it out of duty. But for whatever reason, you just do it, you know. Yeah. And there are times, because it was so tiring, and it meant I couldn't have a life outside of my, my work. And there are times I thought, dear God, make this stop, you know. But of course, then you're aware that if it stops, that means that the people I love are no longer around. And I wasn't wishing them gone. I couldn't cope anymore, you know. Yeah. And that, in, in a many ways, is kind of what we encounter as an organisation, really. I think what happens, and you described it really well there, that it was just what you did and you got in the car on a Friday night and you got back in the car on a, on a Sunday. And the fact that it was four hours or more. Eight, my friend, eight, the height of summer. Yeah. Stuck yeah. at Avonmouth. Yeah. I'd sit there not moving, thinking I could be in New York in less time than this. <laughs> yeah, it kind of creeps up on you in a way. And, and, and that's, that's often the folks that we support here at Northampton Chicare is it's kind of, well, actually, I don't get any time for myself to do anything because I'm sort of caring for my mum or dad or my husband or partner and then I'm getting meals ready and then I'm doing this. But it was so important to me and I don't view myself as a carer because um, I didn't care. You know, I, they were, before my mum went into hospital, um, she was slow around the house but she could go up and down stairs. Um, she cooked meals. But by that stage, um, I would come down on Friday and buy ready meals and put them in the oven and then on weekends I would cook for them. So Sunday they'd have a full roast and everything. I'd buy a week's worth of meals and then my sister would come on the Monday. She lived in Devon. She lives a mile away, three quarters of a mile from um, the house where we were brought up and she would do the work in the week. And it was also important to me, we weren't getting on then, my sister and I, and we get on great now, but we didn't then. Um, but I was conscious that I couldn't and I didn't want to let her do all the work. That wasn't fair, you know. So therefore, that's where the duty came in. But it was born out of love. I just wanted my mum and dad to be as happy as they could be. And I walked through the door on a Friday. My mum would be upstairs resting on her bed. She used to go up there after lunch and then would come down for dinner. And uh, I would walk through the door and she'd do her beautiful smile and uh it was all worth it you know and then when she went into hospital it became different because her brain moved into a different space but she still until the end knew who i was and i would lark around in the ward she shared it with four other women three other women um and uh i'd make her laugh and so if my career had been any different I wouldn't have been able to do it. I remember on one occasion, I spent all my holidays down there so my sister could have a complete break and then I give three weeks at a time to looking after them down there. And they'd fixed up an interview um, for Joan Collins and I'd always wanted to do Joan Collins, but they did it when I was down in Devon. 
and uh, whoever was producing me said, can you go into Radio Devon's studio and do it? I said, I can't, no. I'm with my mum. And she said, but it's Joan Collins. I said, and this is Beryl. And that's where my commitment was, you know. And I knew that if it was right, um, one day I would meet Joan Collins. And I did. And she was nice enough. But she wasn't my mum. Can, I, can, I can see why that was the most important thing for you. It's very apparent from listening to your radio shows that you're a great music fan. And just sort of wondering, that what, was that something, was it kind of a musical household? I know you talked about the radio, but did, did your mum and dad listen to, to, to music? They had no choice. Yeah. yeah, I had my music on way too loud. I, I look back and my bedroom was above the dining room table. And uh, the TV was down. It was one long room, you know. The TV was down the other end of that. And they would have had to have their TV on really loud to hear it because I was blasting it like a disco in my bedroom. And they never once said, turn it down. You know, my mum would go into town and on a Friday with my list. She'd go into record shops and say, have you got any treks? And they'd say, that's a cooking fat mother. What you mean is T-Rex, you know. And uh, then I'd come home from school and my four records, two records, one record, depending on how much pocket money I had, were resting on the arm of the chair, you know. And we got a piano, and I had piano lessons. My sister learnt the oboe, like a zoo on fire. It, I've never heard before or since a racket like it. Um, they met in the brass bands. My two granddads were members of Hamill Brass Band. And so the kids went with them, and they met when they were seven. And they, then they went off and did other stuff. And I never wanted to ask to find out what other stuff my dad was doing. And then they got back together in their late 20s and they married when they were 30. And then they had 51 years before my mum passed. But yeah, they met in the brass band. So there was always that kind of stuff. But um, no one had ever done what I wanted to do. I was very shy while I was some child. I was bullied. And so I went into music, you know, because I figured that on the radio, it was obvious that Noel and Kenny... Uh, were shy and yet they were larger than life and I thought well if I can do that I can show off but no one can see me and so radio is the perfect medium for the introvert yeah I, I get that <laughs> when I have to do stuff on stage and I've, I've done some stand-up terrifying you know when I do discos terrifying but on radio is just a chat you know I think there is that thing about people are not looking at you that, that's that's the way I see it really that because I was I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you what's what's the difference and there seems to be quite a big difference between being on stage and all eyes on you oh there's a gulf it's like you know just because you're a good tv presenter doesn't mean that you can do radio and vice versa so when you get these celebs coming on these comedians often to me they're insufferable because they're playing to the gallery well there is no gallery in radio you know but I used to make programs for friends in my bedroom. So I've, I've spent my entire life, entire life talking to myself. So when I go in a home in 20 years and I sit there in the day room with the heat turned up, just talking to myself, it'll be a doddle for me because it's what I've done all my life, you know. And the nurses used to say, you're so good at doing this. I said, well, it's what I've always done. And now I'm older, I become someone else. When I go out and I, I meet people, it's like an out-of-body thing. I don't think of it as me. When I did drag a couple of times, that was easier. Because if they weren't laughing, they weren't not laughing at me, they were not laughing at the woman character I was playing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do. And where did the interest in rock and roll come from? 
I sometimes feel a fraud doing the rock and roll program because I don't like one specific type of music you know when I was a kid my dad would buy me records the first record that I bought myself was I'm a Tiger by Lulu and the first record that I owned that someone gave me was a EP for a charity and it had different people on it Val Dunican, Love Affair, Anita Harris um, on the Pi record label I can remember all this stuff it's a tragedy of my life I can remember it all um, and dad was in Greenford Market one day and I was with him, and he said, give this one, you'll like this, this is a good beat. And it was Razzle Dazzle by Bill Haley. And it was before I was born, that was 1955, you know. Um, and I'm always amazed when people have uh, said to me, well, you weren't born for the rock and roll. You know, you shouldn't be presenting these shows. Well, I wasn't born when Mozart was around, but I quite like listening to him. You know, yeah. it's a timeless, ageless thing. You're just part of the same curve. So that's where it came from, really. And then... Uh, um, I realised that it wasn't being played. There was a cut-off point. There was a point in the 90s when Radio 1 stopped playing Cliff Richard and Status Quo. And so all these oldies from the 50s and 60s weren't played. And even now, on daytime radio, there are very few people who will play 50s records. You know, I won't go to the um, things like Ruby Mari and the Ink Spots because I don't like them. Yeah. Whereas the 50s, post-rock and roll, yeah, Elvis, Rody Cochran's, Billy Furies, I played the whole time. Yeah. There's not another show on mainstream BBC radio that will play them. I shouldn't, you know, but I had to do it. What the heck? What are they going to do? <laughs> Which neatly brings me on to in, in, in these days of kind of selector and computer generated playlists and all of that kind of thing. Sadly, it's less common for a radio presenter to be able to have a any degree of freedom of choice i'm the last man standing yeah i was given special dispensation to be the last man on bbc local radio they don't like it but you know they know full well that if they say anything i'll rip their head off and do unpleasant business down their neck i don't see any point in employing someone with encyclopedic knowledge of music and not using it you know i know i'm a freak with knowing this stuff i know it i get that you know, you don't get many people like me floating around who know this kind of stuff. So when you've got them, why not use it? I do occasionally when new bosses come in, I get people saying, oh, and they don't say it to me. They'll say it to producers and other people, you know. It's a source of great contention within um, local radio. They're not happy that I do it, other presenters, but. I, I think that it, it's, 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 again, it's about building a programme, isn't it, really, too? It should be, but that's, that, you know, the, the, you can, it's not an art. You know, what I do is just I talk drivel between songs. You know, there's no art to it, but there is, should be a skill in putting programmes together. And that's gone. You know, everyone thinks it can happen on your computer. You're, we're broadcasting into a laptop yeah. and that is the devil's tool, my friend. <laughs> it's that that is the root of all the homogeny that you get on radio now. They all stand the same because, you know, they brought in programs that make it work you know and they do and they don't you know there are good things and there are bad things there will come a point when um, i will be stopped and if i transgress they will sack me i'm always convinced that's why people listen to me not because they like me but because they know one day i'll say something or do something that will get me sacked and they want to be there they want to hear it when it happens <laughs> it's, it's it's interesting what you were saying about um that sort of homogenous kind of 
thing that that, that has happened and um you know i i remember probably I don't know, being a odd sort of child growing up really that um that I used to like going to different parts of the country and if I was going on holiday with my parents and I'd listen to different radio stations and I'd kind of think, oh, that's that's different. I really like that. They, they'd have, of course, heads of music that would... So it would... It would yeah, you'd get some of the same s- stuff that was popular. And now they're all the same. Yeah, but, but you, you, you'd get some left-field things, some album tracks even. That's frowned upon now. You don't do that, you know. And in part, it's the use it or lose it thing, you know. Um an audience for local radio is much smaller than it used to be. An audience for radio full stop is much smaller than it used to be. You know, and when Woolworths went or CNA went or British Home Stores went, people were going, oh, it's such a shame. So you'd say, oh, did you shop there? No. Well, you're the problem. And the same thing is true of local radio. You know, If you want there to be an individual style and presenter on local radio, you do have to listen to it. Because if you don't, it'll be reflected in listening figures and they'll shut them down. They did that with the commercial stations, you know. They took over Hearts and all the rest of them. They had their own individual presenters on breakfast. And then in came Amanda Holden and the fellow she does it with and uh, usurped all their jobs, you know. And people say, no, I won't listen. Their figures are better than they ever were. So it suggests that maybe people aren't that bothered about a local thing. But that's the way society's going, you know. You look at markets, food markets, are less well-subscribed than ever they were. Individual shops, everyone knows this to be true, struggle the independents against the big chains, you know? Well, if you go to the chains, the independents are gonna shut down. And then your high street looks the same as any other high street. Well, that's what will happen, has happened in radio. And I know that that sort of features on your show where you're kind of focusing attention on local and independent businesses. All the time, and that was so important during lockdown. And again, I shouldn't do it, you know, because it's the BBC. But I figure, we're not in London, you know. Who's going to find out? And it's so important to support these businesses. You, people here in Wellingborough, you know. It's so important. Because I'm, you know, you're just, as a presenter, a member of the community. So it's important to do it. And then I do events I'll promote events that are going on. Well, name me someone else who does that. But what's the role of local radio if it's not to reflect your locality, you know? And we're so easy to get on if people just ring, email me, Sarah, we're doing this project, can we come on? You know yourself, you know. The carers, you're a bunch of media whores. You just have to ring and you can come on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that... that that's that is so important and it builds that sense of community but what you're right what's happened is is that uh, big radio groups have taken over and 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 there's that whilst the listening figures might be looking good there's 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 quite a lot that's lost along the way there isn't there? And i don't know how much longer it's got maybe five years tops yeah. i don't know really difficult question i appreciate but going back to music have you if have you ever kind of thought well my all-time favourite records are... Oh, well, they change, don't they? I like Something Else by Eddie Cochran because it's the most exciting record ever made. I like What's Going On by Marvin Gaye because you could listen to it a thousand times and hear something else. I like uh, You Win Again, Bee Gees because it's got some amazing sounds in it and it's got a wonderful melody. I like T-Rex, Metal Guru because it reminds me of my mum and dad. 
I like the Smiths because it's the Smiths. I like Chris Isaac because it's Chris Isaac. You know, you could wake up and love another song, couldn't you? You know, I'll come back next week and you can ask me again, Adam. I'll give you another list. They might all be different. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the thing. Things change, don't they? Really, that or you hear something that you haven't heard before, or you re- are reminded of it. You kind of think, God. When um, my mum, not my dad, but when my mum was was ill in hospital, um, she developed dementia. And uh, music was such a key, such a trigger, you know. And you put a song on. She, in the end, she didn't know where she was. She thought she was in a golf course. And of course, I would let this carry on. You know, my sister would say, "Don't tell her she's in a golf club." I said, "She's perfectly happy in a golf club." Mm-hmm. So I would carry on with that. And then the nurses would say, "Actually, you're not meant to carry on that pretense." And I said, "Well, don't you tell me what to do? It's my mum." So we were quite happy, me and my mum, in the golf club. You know. Um, and, but she couldn't remember her home. She, couldn't, she didn't know she was in Plymouth. She could remember stuff from when she was two or three in Dorset. Um, and then I'd sing a song to her, and she would sing along with me when she could still speak, you know. And I used to take a cassette player in and yeah. play songs, you know. And just occasionally, not always, but just occasionally you could see a light come on, you know. And I would say to the people who are, who are caring, you know, if they've not tried music before, Music and photos of their past. You know, I when when she was in hospital, we put photos of her at various stages of her life, these beautiful black and white photos, all around her bed, so that the nurses could see she wasn't just this weak, um, frail person. She'd had a vibrant life, you know. And uh, yeah, try that. Try childhood photos. That works. I think that something certainly because we encounter lots of people that, that are living with or supporting somebody that's living with dementia or Alzheimer's and we've got specific projects that are around sort of mem- memory hubs and, and uh, a range of, of different things really and certainly I think you're right that, that, that music can be really powerful for people and photos and, and, and memory books and, and, and those kinds of things. So it's interesting that you were kind of being guided by, by, by staff to don't, don't go along with it actually the think the thinking now is well just don't don't challenge it um say well that's not right or you know that's not the case because is that going to help you or or the person so you're on air four hours a day monday to friday oh it's ridiculous four hours (laughs) isn't it and two hours on saturday even i get fed up with my own voice i'm on a day a week can you imagine well yeah it's uh and, and that the four hours kind of happened during the lockdown period, didn't it? It's a con, Adam. We were conned. Yeah. We were told that's what it was going to be. So they took uh, a presenter out so there were fewer people in the building, you know. And they said, uh, it's going to be a temporary measure. I remember thinking, oh, I sure. Sure, it'll be temporary. <laughs> but I'm, I'm certainly conscious that you don't just turn up and go on air and that's it. So I'm wondering with... Four hours a day, two hours at a weekend. There must be quite a lot of preparation that, that goes goes into into all of that. Do you actually ever get any time for you for yourself? Not really. I have half a day on Sunday, and then uh, five weeks holiday a year. But no, but you know, it's 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 what I wanted. So you don't complain about something that you wanted. Yeah. So uh, um, you know, it's it it is what it is, really. Um, people often, if they if they listen, they will talk about my interviews. You know how I know so much. Well, it's because I don't know anything. I'm quite stupid, really. And so I'm conscious that if I didn't do any research, 
then I wouldn't look great. So I research everything and it gives the presenter then a chance, the person you're talking to, a chance to shine so that they can then sell what they have to sell. Because they're not coming because they want to talk to me. They're selling something, whether it be an association like yours, whether it be a show, whether it be a book, a record, they're selling something, you know. So that's why I, I research it and that takes time. You know, I had uh, a book to read last night and I read it, but I couldn't tell you what's in it. You know, they all go. I've read thousands of books and they just go. Yeah, because I, I guess the thing is that, that, that sometimes if it was a book that you were choosing to read, shall we say, then, well, hopefully, unless it's a real duffer, then, 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 then um, you're, you're reading it for pleasure. That's it. And I was thinking the other day, um, what did I used to do before the internet? Because I was interviewing in the days before the internet, and I can't remember where I used to get all my information. But I've always done it, you know. A lot don't. A lot just turn up. And you can tell, you know, if your question is, so tell me about your film, you know that you've not done, that presenter's not done any research. And that's fine, you know, there are loads who've achieved everything you know and they've not done any prep yeah. but i wouldn't keep feel confident confident comfortable doing it you know that way so yeah. you know you've written stuff down about me so you've gone online and you've found stuff out about me there's some dodgy stuff online about me um, but you've found some good stuff and that's how you form an interview absolutely and i i, I think what you're saying about it's difficult now to, to to think back in a way to pre-online times and everything is that, that you'll check this online or you'll do that or whatever and people often don't buy recipe books now because they well, I'm not going to bother because I can uh, I can look up a recipe online life should be cheaper in theory yeah. and yet it's not work that one out one thing that I want to mention that comes across from uh, your radio shows is how much you love Northamptonshire so I, I'm just sort of wondering what various components about the county kind of a, appeal to it's you it's so really. strange you know because uh, for years I would class myself as a Devon boy and whenever I would drive down to be with my folks, I'd see the white ship just before Exeter on the M5 and my heart would lift. And then when uh, my mum passed, I was going down to see my dad and my heart didn't lift anymore. And I think it's because the connection was them, you know? And then I went down in March and I'd had an altercation with a lorry on the M5, so I wasn't in the best frame of mind. And I went places where I used to go in Plymouth and I thought for the first time, oh, I don't belong here anymore. Yeah. And I felt that my life had moved on and I couldn't wait to come back to Northamptonshire. I like um, where I live. I live in the middle of nowhere and I love it. I like the kind of split personality that there is of Northamptonshire in that we're Midlands and we're East Anglia. I like the kind of uh, duality that you get with the locals, Midok, and the commuters who come in. I like that. Just feel at home here, really, you know. And you can't quantify it, you can't explain it, you know, but there's something I like about it. I don't think that our towns in Northamptonshire have been best served by leaders and councils over the years, but I think there is extreme beauty in the county. If we could up it and lift it to the sea, I would be perfectly happy because I love the sea, but it's a great place. It's got real heart, you know. And it's easy to say that because I have a job where if people know me, they like me, you know. And it's nice to be liked, you know, and, and people here have treated me very well. But I always say to people, for everyone that likes you, 
there are four that can't stand you and five that don't know who you are. You know, but I like it here. I've, 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 I don't know whether, who knows what will happen, whether this will be my forever home, but I'd like it to be. I think it's it's one of those counties that has got a great deal of appeal, but lots of people don't know about it. That's the thing, we're a secret. Yeah. And in part, you think we'll keep out. We don't want you. But it would be nice to be recognised for some of the things that we had. Going back to, to radio and the changes that uh, that you've sure sort of see, seen through the, the, the time that you've worked in radio. I remember reading a, a book by Tony Stoller. He used to be Radio Authority, I think, in Radio 210 MD. And he wrote this book called Sounds of Your Life about the independent local radio station. It was kind of a history, I suppose. That at a point, I think, in the late 80s, he felt that it switched from independent local radio to commercial radio. Uh, and it ki- that kind of resonated with me. And I'm thinking about some of the things that we've been saying earlier. Well, it's a business, you know, and they're great, those stations. They're great. People love them, you know. I'm not, you know, as a little minnow here to knock people who've achieved far more, you know. But they're not for me. But it's a business, you know. But then the whole thing that I'm in, people at work think that they're in neither journalism or broadcasting. I don't. I'm in showbiz. You know, I'm an entertainer. You know, they want me to do phone-ins and all the rest of it. I'm not interested. You know, I'm not interested. Do you want me to hold people to account? I just want to entertain people. I want to make them feel better about their day. You know, but they do the business. You know, it is a business. The BBC is funded by the licence fee, you know, and they have to make sure that they get their value for money. And I give them value for money. I work so hard to repay the privilege because it's not a right to be on the radio. It's a privilege, you know. Um, but that's their job to worry about the business, to worry about the commercial side. You know, we don't live and die by listening figures at the BBC, you know. But I've never done really. It's never been my priority. I never look at listening figures not interested you know they go up they go down they go down they go up that's how it works you know you can't make people like you you have to be yourself and if they like you they will listen but as i said you know for everyone that does there will be four that can't stand you and five that don't know who you are thanks so much for for taking the time to uh, to have a chat to us bernie it's uh, been great to talk to you Pleasure's all mine and we've reached the end of another northampton shakara's podcast Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, have any ideas as to uh, topics that we might include on podcasts to come, then you can contact us on email, podcast at northamptonshire-carers.org. You can give us a call at the office on 01933 677 907. Or if you come across any of us across the organisation anywhere in the county and you have any thoughts, whether that's a a group uh, or a drop-in, or wherever, uh, then uh, just let us know and the message will get back to us here at the uh, podcast team. Next month, I'll be talking to my colleagues from the Making Carers Count team here at Northamptonshire Carers in advance of Black History Month, which is in October. Until then, I'm uh, off over the hill. Goodbye. This podcast is created by Northamptonshire Carers and is a Man With A Beard production.